0: Good evening church, grace and peace to you guys. If you have your Bibles, if you please may turn with me as Steve already hinted at. The book of Jude, the book of Jude will be looking at the two last verses of his letter, the famous doxology in verses 24 to 25. Book of Jude, verses 24 to 25. And for any note takers out there, the title of the sermon this evening is going to be simply called The Keeper. The Keeper. And once you find your places in your Bibles, loved ones, if you please may stand with me as we read the word of God for the public reading of the scripture, I'll be reading through the English Standard Version this evening. Cool, looks like everyone is there. This is what God says to us this evening, church, in the book of Jude, starting in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and To present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So, what our Lord says to us this evening, church, let's go before him one more time in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the grace of just meeting again one more time this Sunday, Lord, uh, to gather in the morning and to gather one more time in the evening, Father Lord. I just pray that as um, your people have returned back to hear from your word, Father, that God, it will be your word going to your people, that God um, is helping us to have the ears to listen, Father, not just to be hearers only, but God, to apply your word to their lives so that, God, they're not just doers of it, Lord, but God, are just more made into the image of your son, Jesus, Father. And God, um, whether there's any unbelievers amongst us or anyone who may stumble upon this recording in the future, um, we just pray for, pray for their salvation beforehand, Lord, because um, we know that you can do anything, Lord. And so I just pray that this message, Father, that will be Preached. Um, remove me as much as possible, Father, so I do not ruin your word, but it is simply your word going to your people, Father. And so, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the grace of meeting one more time this Sunday. And we just lift up all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe see the church. So, in the United States, right, our country, many of us have been taught to honor those who have gone before us who protect our country's freedoms, right? Those who have served in the military, particularly. For example, every time maybe you see someone wearing a military uniform or maybe they have a veteran cap or you discover that someone that you know has served, usually our immediate reaction is to thank them for their service, right? And we should because these people have made tremendous sacrifices, right, to maintain our country's liberties. Many have laid down their lives um, for, our, for our sake, right? And so it just makes sense that we remember and always honor them. And since they made the necessary sacrifices to preserve our freedoms as Americans, we ought to always honor and remember them too. However, if we as Americans then realize that honor is rightly due to certain individuals for what they have done, like those who have served in the military, then we got to ask ourselves a very honest question. Because who is the only person that always deserves our praise and thanksgiving? And for born-again Christians we would answer that only the creator God, right, is worthy of all of our adoration and praise. For everything in the universe is contingent upon him for his existence, because he is the necessary being that made it all, right? So by default, God as the creator is worthy of all of our praise, for we as his creatures were made to glorify and enjoy him. Furthermore, God has also saved us as his people from our sins through his son, Jesus Christ where everyone experiences the everyday brokenness of this fallen world, God sent his son Jesus, right, to fix what we broke, what humanity broke because of our sinning. Although, like I said, we were the ones who broke it because of our sin, God sent the God-man Jesus so that everyone who calls upon his name in faith alone will be saved through the gospel. So as a result, God is both Lord, is both Lord and Savior, and as a result, is worthy of all of our worship. Therefore, put simply, the main point of Jude 24 to 25, which is the main point of my sermon this evening, church, is this. That God preserves your salvation, so praise him as Savior. God preserves your salvation, so praise him as Savior. And this is going to act as our roadmap for us because there's two parts in our text this evening. Part one, God preserves your salvation. God preserves your salvation. And because of that, therefore, Praise him as savior, praise him as savior. Those are the two parts of our sermon, or of my sermon this evening. However, though, before we can jump into our text this evening, we need to keep in mind again why did Jude write this letter in the first place? It's going to help us understand his point in the doxology this evening. Because, if you may recall from last time, Jude has been writing this letter to a group of to Jewish churches in Israel during the mid first century A.D. Although he wanted to write to encourage them about their common salvation in Jesus Christ, the rise of false teachers at this time forced him to kind of change plans. Consider what Jude says about the situation himself in verses 3 to 4 of his letter. He writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see here, right, the theme of the of his entire letter, that Jude found it necessary to urge these churches to fight for the gospel. Why? Because certain false teachers slipped into their churches and were perverting the grace of God for their sinful desires all done in a manner that was denying Jesus' sovereign lordship. And these false teachers thought that they could sin all that they wanted without any thought of judgment from God. So then not only were they taking God's grace, mercy, peace, and love for granted, but they were expressing, ultimately, the rejection of his authority as master too. So once Jude then, throughout his entire letter, once he finally addresses this problem, He is finally then able to close off his letter within this doxology by writing finally about their common salvation in Christ. And that is what we're going to see in Jude 24 to 25, that God preserves your salvation church, therefore praise him as Savior. So with all that in mind, loved ones, let's look at the first part of our text, which is again this, that God preserves your salvation. God preserves your salvation. So, look at verse 24 in your Bibles, beloved. This is what Jude writes. He says, Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So, now we approach the finale of Jude's letter. Because up until now, Jude has been conducting really an in depth heart analysis of these false teachers in the churches of Israel. Not only are they really religious hypocrites, but they reject God as Lord and Savior. They reject the gospel, the good news, right, by living according to their sinful desires. And their ungodly influence, unfortunately, has dragged many of these Christians in these churches to follow their destructive lifestyles too. As a result, Jude in his letter shows how both the Old and New Testaments predict God's eternal judgment upon these false teachers due to their rebelling against him. Therefore, Jude encourages these, te- these churches in Israel again to contend for the faith. Loved ones, fight for the gospel, the gospel that was once delivered to all the saints, right? And they were to do so, as we saw last time in our text, in verses 20 to 23, that they were to do so by keeping themselves in God's love. And how were, and how were they supposed to keep themselves in God's love? Well, by, by doing three things, right? By depending upon him through the word, the Bible, through prayer, and also waiting for the return of the king, Jesus Christ. Furthermore, since God first loved them, they are to love those who have fallen prey to these false teachers' grasp. They are to show Christ-like compassion by conducting, really, a rescue operation to restore these wandering sheep back to the fold of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. However, Jude realizes that he is asking, what he is asking these Jewish Christians to do, it's impossible by mere human strength alone. There needs to be divine intervention for them. To not only contend for the gospel, but to be kept to the very end themselves. And, it, and this is only possible, loved ones, through, our, again, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So to communicate this reality then, Jude announces the finale of his letter with one of the most glorious doxologies ever written, the Jude doxology. But you might be asking yourself, well, John, what is a doxology? And to put it in layman's terms, a doxology is a brief expression of praise to God. A brief expression of praise to God. And with most doxologies in the New Testament, when you read them, they usually contain four parts. First part, the recipient of praise, which always belongs to God. Second, why he is to be praised. Third, when he is to be praised. And finally, the final affirmation of his praise, usually with the words, amen. So let it be. Therefore, we see God as the recipient of praise in verse 24. So look at your Bibles again, beloved, where Jude says, Now to him, now to him who is able. Contextually, the recipient of praise is God. So the main idea here in our passage tonight is simply God himself. And Jude says that God is also able. But what does that mean? What is he able to do? Well, in the Greek, the action of being able to do something conveys the idea of a continual process. So whatever God's about to do, it's a continual process that he's doing. So what exactly is God able to do? Look again at verse 24, beloved. Jude explains that God is able to do two things. One, that God is able to keep you from stumbling. And two, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, right? So God is able to do two things, to keep you and to present you. Let's look at them one at a time, starting with the first one. God is able to keep you, loved ones, from stumbling. In other words, God has the divine ability of guarding and protecting his people morally. That's what the Greek means there. And this doesn't mean that he will always keep us from stumbling from sin, right? Because although we are saved from sin's power because of the cross of Christ, we are still cursed with sin's presence. That's why we still fall into sin where we have the ability now to love God and others because of the cross of Christ, we will not be completely free from sin until the return of Christ. But yet Jude's point is that God will keep us from permanently stumbling away from him. In other words, it's impossible for born-again Christians to lose their salvation. And this biblical teaching then has been called by some theologians as the preservation of the saints. The preservation of the saints, the idea that God will keep his people from the moment he first saved them till the very end when they are glorified in his presence. And I have to say, beloved, that this teaching of scripture is perhaps one of the most comforting teachings in the entire Bible. Because as Christians, your confidence does not and it cannot rest in your ability to keep your own salvation. Because let's be honest, as Christians we still sin. Like the rest of sinful humanity, we fall short by stumbling into all sorts of sins, right? And God forbid, sometimes really deep sins, right? Consider guys like King David had an affair with Bathsheba and tried to cover up his sin by killing her wife, you know, Uriah. We know how that story turned up, but God restored him. Or think of more recently, like the Apostle Peter, right? Although he was one of the pillars of the early church, started off, you know, at least in his early parts as a Christian, by denying our Lord three times. Again, the Lord persevered them till the end, but yet not without their troubles. And I mention that, loved ones, because if we are the ones that ultimately are ultimately responsible to keeping our salvation, we would have forfeited long ago due to our many sins. We would have lost it because of our sinning. Instead, loved ones, your confidence rests in the trying God who is able to keep your salvation alone. And it is not that you are holding on to God with the possibility of letting go, like oh, oh sin, I said, oh, I let go, I'm lost. Right? It's not like that. Instead, it's God who is keeping you until, until the very end. And to help illustrate this reality, think of how a parent, right, lovingly embraces their newborn baby in their arms. A, a beautiful picture. The baby is not hanging on to their parent, right? It couldn't even if it tried. And if it did, without the help of the parent, the baby's gonna fall. To the ground and start crying, right? A horrible picture. Instead, it needs to be carried by its parent. Likewise, Christians are like newborn babes being embraced in the loving arms of our Heavenly Father. And the Bible is very clear on this. And what I'm going to do is present three passages, but what I want to do is present how each one of these passages point to how each person of the Trinity preserves your salvation. Although the one true God is One in essence, we only worship one true God, yet he subsists in three persons as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So when the triune God then preserves your salvation, loved ones, it is from the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Very intentional when I use those words. From the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And each person's actions of keeping your salvation are united as one work for our God is three and yet one. So let's consider how God the Father then keeps your salvation in 1 Peter chapter 3, or sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. The Apostle Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is unperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So we see here that by God's mercy, he withholds what sinners deserve, which is eternal judgment for sin. And God only does this for those who have been truly born again, which means that if you repented of your sins, of your sinful rebellion against God, and place your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved, right? If you believe in him as Lord and Savior alone. But where life is truly miserable then, for everyone due to the cruel slave master of sin, not just for Christians, but for everyone, right? We as Christians, at least, we possess a living hope, the gift of God, the gift of having new life in Jesus. Because since Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected, those who believe in him won't die, but will truly live, experiencing true joy in God who has life in himself. As a result, the Christian's inheritance is salvation. A restore relationship with God the Creator. And notice what Peter says that God the Father does with your salvation. He says that it's imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So, beloved, God the Father protects your salvation. It's imperishable, it's undefiled and unfading. Because he himself guards it until the very end, until you are glorified before his presence, face to face with great joy. Since he chose you in eternity past, he will preserve you until the very end. That's what our God does, God the Father. But furthermore, let's consider a little bit of how God the Son keeps your salvation. We see this in John 10, a good example. John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30. Jesus Christ himself says, my sheep... Hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So we hear a little bit from the great shepherd himself, right? That no one will snatch his sheep from his hands, because every sheep that Christ came to die for will hear his voice because he knows them. And since the unbegotten father loves his eternally begotten son, Jesus, their eternal love prevents anyone or anything from snatching their sheep from them. So beloved, God the son was sent to give you salvation. Since the father, God the father, entrusts his son with all that he came to die for, he came to redeem us as his people from our sins so that we will experience forgiveness for sins, right? And restore relationship with the God who made you. So God the Son as well preserves your salvation by redeeming you, loved ones. Lastly, consider how God the Spirit keeps your salvation. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, the Apostle Paul writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? So, what we see here then, this idea of being sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, it's really capturing the idea of a pledge or it's a down payment of a Christian's future salvation. And to kind of clarify what I mean by that, where salvation past is what Christ has done for us in the cross, and salvation present is becoming more like Jesus now, salvation future is being completely sinless in the presence of God's glory. So God promises this reality with the Holy Spirit as a down payment. In other words, it's a promise. Because, and and we kind of see this with people today like ourselves, we may put a down payment of money, right, for a large purchase, maybe like a car or a house, but the difference is, people, because we're sinners, we're not perfect, sometimes we fail to keep our promises and pay the full amount. But with God, God the Father, he has purchased you with the Son's blood in order to save you. And he promises that you will one day be fully glorified when Jesus returns to restore you alongside the rest of creation and glory. Beloved, God the Holy Spirit is then given as a down payment for you, for your salvation. He is the promise that will preserve you till the end. And since God is goodness, he is truth, it's impossible. It's against his nature for him to break his promise. Therefore, beloved, our triune God, he preserves your salvation by keeping you without stumbling. So do not live as if you are the one who will keep yourself to the end. Granted, Jude does say that, you know, we ought to keep ourselves in God's love because as we grow more like Jesus, we are responsible to produce fruit in our lives that authenticates that our faith in him is real. However, the French theologian and pastor John Calvin He rightly observes that Jude shows our exhortations and labors could do nothing except through the power of God accompanying them. What does that old English mean, right? I know, it's hard to understand. In layman's terms, again, all that God commands us to do is only possible if he graciously empowers us daily to do them. And this ought to humble and comfort us, beloved, because it's humbling in the sense that just as we could do nothing to save ourselves, There's nothing that we can do to lose our salvation either. Now, that doesn't mean that you go and sin as you please, right? That's the wrong attitude. The false teachers in Jude's day thought that way, right? Instead, grow in your hatred and victory over sin as you become more like Christ throughout your life as a Christian. Furthermore, this ought to also comfort you, loved ones, because it's God who will always keep you, no matter the trial, no matter the temptations that you're going through right now, no matter how hard life is getting for you. No matter how low you are brought in this very present life, there is one thing that can never be taken away from you as a born-again Christian, and that is your salvation. Because God himself graciously keeps it on your behalf. But with all this in mind, this does raise an interesting question, right? How about those who have once professed to believe in Jesus and have fallen away? Does this mean that they truly lost their salvation or worse, did God fail to keep them? God forbid. God forbid. God forbid, because when we hear of these stories, according to scripture, what makes the most sense is that those people were never saved to begin with. They were false converts. The apostle John had to deal with a particular situation like this um, when he was writing in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. Listen to what he says. It's very clear. He says to his beloved children that they went out from us, little children, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, right? They would have persevered with us till the end. But the fact that they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. False converts. Therefore, it's impossible for a born-again Christian to lose their salvation, for God himself will preserve you until the very end. And all this leads us to consider the second thing that God is able to do. So look one more time in verse 24, loved ones. Jude explains that God is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So where God is able to keep you without stumbling, this idea really progresses towards a climax. That is, to be kept blameless until again you see God face to face with joy, with great joy, right? It's kind of like what Paul says in Philippians 1.6. He says, I am sure of this. Paul's confident That he who began a good work in you at the start of your salvation will bring it to completion till the day of Jesus Christ, when Christ returns to to restore this entire universe, right? So when Jude here then is saying that God will present you, he is really saying that you will one day stand blameless before God's presence. But let's check out that word blameless for, for a minute, because the word blameless here is conveying the idea of someone without fault. In other words, it's being used here as a metaphor for an unblemished sacrifice. And to understand what that means, we got to take a, a quick um, step back into the Old Testament. So, Because back in Old Testament times, the children of Israel, they had to offer various sacrifices, right, in order to approach God and worship. You know, it, could have, it was a variety of different things, but primarily it was blood sacrifices through animals. For example, lambs, right? And yet their sacrifices, it had to be unblemished. In other words, it had to be perfect, because it illustrated the point of the sinner being covered by an unblemished, perfect sacrifice. In other words, this sacrifice would be a substitute by dying in the place of the guilty party, the sinner. And the reason why Israel had to do that, because like the rest of humanity, we're sinful, we're fallen. And when it comes to God, he's holy, he's perfect. And it was through the sacrificial system that God gave to Israel, that that was how they were to maintain their worship with him. We see an example of this in Leviticus 1.3. Here's one example of one of the offerings that, that Israel had to offer. Moses writes that if this or if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, tabernacle, that he may be accepted before the Lord. However, when we read passages like this, right, you know, all the sacrifices in the Old Testament it all pointed to the one and only sacrifice that will take away sin forever, the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. As the writer of Hebrews kind of says, talks about this in Hebrews 9.14, he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And that's so important to keep in mind because the blood of animals could not completely wash away the Israelites from their sins, or any person for that matter. That's why they have to keep making sacrifices annually, continually, right, every single year. But with Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross was once and for all. Since he is without blemish as the perfect son of God, the sinless son of God, he offered himself as a substitute for everyone who would believe in him. So anyone can be forgiven of their sinning right before God for Christ dies in their place on the cross by paying for their sin debt in full with his own blood. And as a result, for those who believe are not only forgiven, but grow more and more like Jesus. And this process continues until they are presented before the creator God in the end, blameless. That is what Jude means when he says, going further in the text, the presence of his glory, God's glory. And to speak of God's glory here is really to speak about himself. What do I mean by that? Well, God's glory is really the internal reality of who he is and all of his eternal perfections, right? Jude's going to use glory a little bit differently, but what he is saying here, that's what he means. All that is in God is simply God. And glory is one of those attributes. And the only appropriate response to this incredible reality that we're going to one day bask in the glory of God, right? we're going to see him face to face, right? That we're filled with great joy, incredible joy, the joy of celebration. And I can confidently say that there is nothing in this world, and we know this as Christians, that will bring us as much joy as knowing Jesus. Because this world, this fallen world, promises all sorts of fleeting moments of happiness, whether it be in pleasure, or in in comfort, or in power. Having a saving knowledge of Jesus leads you to experience a state of joyful contentment in Him that only He can provide. As King David once said in Psalm 1611, You make known to me the path of life, and your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, beloved, there will be a day that we will celebrate with great joy when Christ returns to restore ourselves alongside the rest of this broken world. And I can say it's going to be an eternal party that like we have never experienced before. And so until that day comes, right? Glorify God now with your life by joyfully living for Him. As American pastor John Piper is famous to saying, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Since we were originally made to glorify and enjoy God, let all that you do in this life right now, loved ones, be an expression of worship to Him. Whatever it is in your jobs, do that with excellence to the glory of God. Your relationship with others, do that to the best of your ability with excellence to the glory of God. Your giftings and talents, the same. Do all to the glory of God. Because since God has made us and redeemed us back to Himself through His Son by the Spirit, therefore, Live for him, loved ones. Live for him. However, before I can move on, I do not want to take everything that I have said for granted. What do I mean by that? I realize that at times, occasionally an unbeliever might come in here, maybe an unbeliever might be listening to this in the future, that, you know, because of that reality, that they have some problems with Christianity and you know, I want to take this time just to address one of them to them and even to encourage us, church, of how to interact with with some of the stuff that they might bring up is that a big problem for unbelievers is that, you know, that the belief that Christianity is the only one true religion, that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Because people in our culture will say, well, John, there's millions of people across different times and places and cultures. They have encountered two, God, right? Just because they're religious beliefs are a little bit different, right? Isn't it all just different paths leading to the same destination? That's what a lot of people in our culture will think. And not only that, but who are you to say, John, that Christianity is right and everyone else is wrong? Not only is that kind of shocking to me, but that is exclusively intolerant. That's what a lot of people in our culture assume about exclusive and the absolute truth claims of the Bible, you know, they continue in saying that if, every, if everyone's truth works for them, then that's their truth. Who are you to say otherwise? Why can't you just love them for who they are? How they feel on the inside, right? That's our culture. And so we got to respond to this. Then that's what I want to do right now. And the thing that we have to understand is that when a person makes such a claim, the claim for inclusivism to include everyone, it's really just a covert, it's really covert exclusivism. Let me repeat that. When a person makes such claims for inclusivism to include everyone, it's really just covert, it's hidden, it's subtle, exclusivism. Because if you're saying that we should embrace everyone regardless of their beliefs, then you are excluding myself as a Christian because I do not hold to your beliefs. You see what I'm getting at? And so when people make such a claim, it's really at best inconsistent because they're breaking their own standard and at worst, hypocritical. But not only that, but even when you study each religion, and this is good for us loved ones to, to remind ourselves that there are far more differences than there are similarities. You know, there's, it's not just different paths leading to the same gods. No, there's a bunch of different gods that people have made up over the years, right? And so we can't just say each one is valid. And not only that, but many of them don't even correspond with reality, and so when talking to unbelievers, or if there's anyone that listens to this that's an unbeliever, Christianity is true, not because it corresponds with reality, but because it's the only worldview that can explain reality. Whether it's the laws of logic, right, you know, how I'm, how I'm talking right now, using logic, it's, that's immaterial, right? Or the uniformity of nature, right, how the, there's design within the universe. It didn't just come there overnight. Or how about moral absolutes? What's the standard of right and wrong? How do you know that for sure? As Christians, we find our source in the God who has revealed himself, right? Both in creation and in the Bible. That's how we know, right? And only the Christian world has that answer. And so if there's any unbeliever or anyone who thinks that Christianity is um, exclusive due to other religions, just know that you are not consistent with your own standard. And when you do consider the truth claims about the Bible, it it has an answer to reality that cannot be found anywhere else. And people can reject this, right? But people can't deny the claim that the Bible is authoritative. It's an errant without error and it's God's inspired breathed-out word. Therefore, we have considered how God, right, preserves the believer's salvation. Yet what is ulti- but what's the ultimate right response to this, right? This leads us to our second and final point tonight, beloved, and it's a direct inference of how we ought to respond To the God who keeps our salvation. Point number two, praise God as Savior. That's the direct inference. Because God preserves you, praise God as Savior. So look at verse 25 of your Bibles, beloved. Jude writes here, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So Jude opens verse 25 by focusing on the idea of God himself again, right? And not just any God, but Jude is very specific to the only God. And this, when we hear this, it's kind of recalling us back to the Old Testament again, to that great statement of monotheism in the Old Testament called the Shema, or to listen, right? So listen, beloved, to what Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But not, only, but not only is Jude kind of referring back to the Shema, but Jude is also, he also calls God the only God and our Savior. And again, this is pointing us back to the Old Testament of how God saved his people Israel time and time again. An example would be, you know, you know bringing them out through the Red Sea, um, freeing them from Pharaoh's wrath, slavery in Egypt. And the thing, and I kept this till now, the thing about most doxologies in the in the New Testament that we need to keep in mind is that they're usually ascribed not only to God, but specifically God the Father. Some are ascribed to Christ, but Judas focusing on the Father because he is the grand initiator of the believer's salvation. Because again, our salvation is from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, right? And this, is what, and this is why Jude further clarifies this, that it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Kind of, kind of similar to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5 as a cross reference, he says, for there is only one God, right? Again, going back to the Shema. And there is one mediator between God and man, the, man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So not only is the, Father, is the Father God then, and the Son God, but both again are united in their work to save their people. Yet, how are they to carry out that action? It's going to be distinguished in how they relate to one another. What do I mean by that? Well, you got God the Father, right? He's unbegotten, and you got his Son, who is eternally begotten from the Father. But don't let that trip you up, right? Because when Job's witness would hear that, right? This is like, oh, see, the Son's from the the Father. Therefore, there was a time when he was not, right? No, no. Got to look at the text more closely. Instead, what distinguishes the Son from the Father is that the Son is eternally generated from the Father. It's an eternal relationship. In other words, there is never a time when the Father never had His Son. And there was never a time when the Son never had His Father. Because they have been eternally united in the divine essence, the one nature of God, in their love for one another. And the bond of love between them is the Holy Spirit because the Spirit eternally proceeds from both of them, Right. So as a result, it's our triune God that saves and preserves his people. Yet it all begins with God the Father. Again, it's carried out through God the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I bring that up because, as a reminder, because it seems that a lot of Christians can either place too much emphasis on the Son or maybe the Spirit in some circles, but sometimes seem to leave the Father out. And I'm not saying that one person deserves more praise than the other. I'm not getting at that point at all. Our God is one and in his nature and work. But what I'm saying is that let's praise our triune God for graciously saving us, each person, because our God is one in three. For it is from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. And a good habit to think about this, more beloved, is really through prayer. As he acts as the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit in prayer, thank each person for how he has saved you. For example, you can thank the Father for graciously electing you. Not that you were worthy, but that he chose you out of his great love for you, for his, his good pleasure. You can thank the Son because he was sent to redeem you from your sins, right? So that you would have a restored relationship with God the Father. And you can also thank the Holy Spirit for giving you, giving you a new heart to even believe in the gospel in the first place. And the more we think about God in such a manner, loved ones, the more we will continually praise him for who he truly is as a trinity. As a result... Jude begins to close off his doxology by expressing a series of reasons on why you ought to praise God specifically. So look again at your Bibles in verse 25, beloved, where Jude writes this be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And so Jude lists four things to praise God for you got his glory, you got his majesty, dominion, and authority, right? And so let's briefly look at them one at a time. Starting with first, praising God for his glory. And I already kind of mentioned this a little while ago, but Jude mentions God's glory earlier back in verse 24. And so, so what's the difference here, right? And he, back in verse 24, he was talking about the eternal reality of who God is as the creator. But here in verse 25, that when we give glory, glory there in that sense is more of, a, of an external manifestation. And that's important to keep in mind because God possesses glory within himself as God. It's not that he needs glory from anyone or anything in creation. Nothing can be added to God or taken away from him. Because if that could, because if that could happen, then he'll cease being God. But instead, as scripture says, God is self-existent, right? As that unmoved mover, the beginning of all things. However, God's glory here in verse 25, as this external manifestation, it's the idea that he, reserve, that he deserves glory for who he is as the creator. Since in in, in the the culture in this time, Israel in the first century, it was an honor and shame society. And so people would publicly give honor to the individual worthy of it. And since God is the creator of everything, it made sense that, well, he alone is worthy of our glory. Let's praise and honor him, right? And for example, we see creation does this all the time. Creation itself glorifies God because creation exists because of him. Psalms 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. However, humanity, the pinnacle of God's creation, we tend to rob Him of His honor, don't we? By worshiping everything else in creation but Him. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.25, that humanity has exchanged the truth about God for a lie and, unfortunately, worshiped and served the creature Rather than the Creator, and Paul just can't help himself. But but praise God, who is blessed forever. Amen. So, with all this in mind, beloved, who do we value in this in our life? Right. It's always a good question to ask yourself from time to time: Is it truly God, or is it something else in His creation? As British writer C.S. Lewis rightly um, rightly observed, that just as men spontaneously will praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Right. And so again, by keeping all that in mind, is there any idols in our lives that we value more than God the creator? If there is any, we gotta repent of them. We gotta destroy them and return back to serving God alone because there is only one who alone is worthy of our worship. And there is only one of whom the entire cosmos glorifies, right? From the farthest galaxy all the way to the smallest molecule, it all glorifies its creator. And even when you look at the skies, the oceans, the land, all the animals and the humans inhabiting the earth, it all points to God's glory. And even when we think about that reality, I was like, man, all that points to God's glory. God is infinitely times greater than our highest thoughts about himself, right? As one famous medieval scholar put it, that God is the greatest being imaginable. And even with our highest thoughts about God, God is infinitely times a billion greater than that. That's how great our God is loved ones. And so with that in mind, it is impossible for us as mere, finite creatures to fully comprehend God. But, because He's graciously revealed Himself both in creation and in the Bible, we can truly know Him as Lord and Savior. And this leads us to consider the second thing we are to praise God for, His majesty. And the idea here is it's really closely connected to His glory. And so in other words, it can just mean that God is great. Praise Him for His greatness, The writer of Hebrews captures this idea when he illustrates how God has most revealed himself to humanity through his son, Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So God is not only glorious, but majestic as, again, that greatest being imaginable. He's a creator, so it makes sense. And this leads us then to consider the final two things of what we ought to praise God for, his power and his authority. And I'm bringing these two together because they're very closely connected to one another. Where God's power indicates his really imperial domain over the universe as being all-powerful, his authority indicates his right to rule it. To help kind of illustrate this, Think of your local police officer, right, here in Asperia. They have power and authority. Where their power as a police officer is found in their physical training and also in their service revolver if they have to use it, their authority is symbolized in their badge, right? And say if they try to use that same power in an area where they don't have authority, like say if they went to Mexico, they're going to get into trouble, right? They might get arrested or even worse, right? And so in contrast, keeping that in mind, God is not only all-powerful, but he has the right to rule his creation as the king of kings and the lord of lords and the god of gods. As one of the former prime ministers of the, of the Netherlands, or Netherlands, Abraham Kuyper, I love this quote, he once said that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of the human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. All this leads us to consider the final two aspects of Jude's doxology. So, look at your Bibles, beloved, where Jude says in verses 25, before all time and now and forever. Amen. So, the phrase before all time and now forever just means that praise God all the time. He is worthy of it. Whether it is what he's done in the past, what he's doing now, and what he will do in the future, praise him for all that he has done because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God alone is great, for without him, nothing would exist. We are all contingent upon him for our existence. And not only did he create us to glorify him, but we were made to find true joy and life in him. And despite our constant sinning against him, God still loved the world, right? That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Therefore, loved ones, praise God God and give him the honor that is due his name. He alone is the greatest being imaginable. He is the all-powerful one who not only knows everything, but a sovereign over all. He has a purposeful reason for everything, and for there is not one maverick molecule in the universe, as R.C. Sproul would put it, right? And not only does he have authority to rule, but he does so as the greatest good imaginable. And this is only possible because he is the creator of the universe, so the the only great God and Savior. So with all this in mind, for Jude then to close off his letter in this way, especially in that of all the false teachers wrecking havoc in the churches of Israel, it would have really comforted his readers. Although they would experience difficult times contending for the gospel, they could rest assured that their salvation doesn't ultimately depend upon themselves. Instead, they would be preserved to the end by the very same God who saved them in the beginning. As a result, they could worship God as the great keeper. And they would begin by doing so, by affirming everything, everything that Jude wrote in his letter by saying, So let it be, Jude. Amen. Therefore, beloved, God preserves your salvation. So praise him as Savior. He he who began a good work when you first believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he's going to keep you until the very end, loved ones. And I understand that living in a fallen world, it's not easy. Because there's various trials and tribulations. But take heart, loved ones, because as our Lord Jesus Christ promised us, he has crushed the head of Satan, the one in charge of the world, and put him, and put him under his feet so that we don't have to fear him anymore. So all of that in mind, contend for the gospel by keeping yourselves in God's love. And we do that by living in the Bible daily, submissively depending upon God in prayer, and living life with other believers while waiting for the return of Christ. Refresh the heart of the saints by serving them with Christ-like compassion. Be the salt and light of the earth by sharing the goodness with those who need Christ-like compassion. but never forget it's not you who will ultimately carry yourself to the end, but the God who saved you. As a result, live your entire life by praising Him as your savior. for only then will he be able to, well, only then will you be able to live as we ought, by sharing the good news that God is indeed the initiator and the keeper of our salvation forevermore. And if there's any unbeliever here, or any unbeliever that may stumble upon this online, God made all things good. You know, God's design was perfect, pure, even people that he made good. But because of sin, because we rebelled against God, right, you know, we ultimately sinned against him. We we wanted to be God-like ourselves. We brought sin and death into this world. And the consequence of that was not just the brokenness that we experience on a day-to-day basis, but, you know, eternal damnation and hell. But yet God provided a way, right? He sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him as Lord and Savior and repents of their sins and believes in him, you will be saved. The gospel, right? The good news of Jesus. And and we know that's true because he's not dead in the grave, right? We know that he wasn't a crazy person. He wasn't just telling lies. But as the Bible reveals itself, he was telling the truth and he rose again from the grave as the son of God. And so if you believe in him by faith alone and repent of your sins, you will be saved and you will be brought back into restoration not only into God's family, but are able to live a life glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Not because you brought yourself there, but because God was faithful to keep you, to save you, and to keep you until the very end. And so if there's any unbeliever here um, that would like to know more about the gospel, you, you may talk to myself, to Pastor Steve, or anyone else. You know, we would love to help you um think about these things if you're if you're struggling with these things right now. But with all of that in mind, we're gonna pray and also too, we're gonna partake of the Lord's Supper, and just by way of um, the communion morning, You know, communion is for, you know, baptized believers in Jesus. And so if you are an unbeliever or a a, a Christian living a lifestyle of sin or hasn't been baptized, then I just strongly exhort you just to um, refrain for tonight and just observe as, you know, the other believers who will partake of communion. But for those who will be taking communion for Sunday evenings at the moment, we are asking that if you weren't here for the Sunday morning service and if if you didn't take communion, just raise your hand, you know, after I pray, um, we're going to, um, Pastor C is going to pass with the elements. I'm going to need one as well. And so if that's you, raise your hand. But um, besides that, we'll pray. Um, we'll take the Lord's communion and benediction, and we'll be on out of her church. So let's pray one more time, and then we'll um, do the, take the Lord's Supper together. So Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given us. We are just so just, just baffled of how great you are, Lord, and just we're so unworthy, Lord, of just the great love that you've shown us, God. You're so mindful of us, Lord, daily, but the fact that in eternity past, you chose us, Lord, out of your own good pleasure, that you sent your Son, Jesus, to be fully God, fully man, to live a perfect life, Lord, to endure all things that we endure on a day-to-day basis, yet without sin, to ultimately be our great high priest who sympathizes with us, Lord, so that, God, we will not die in hell for our sins, but because of Jesus, because of our faith in you, a gift which comes from the Holy Spirit, Lord, we have new life in you, Lord, and The fact that we're able to know the creator of the entire universe, Lord. We just praise you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. And I just pray that whatever trials or tribulations, temptations or whatever, that my brothers and sisters are going through, Lord, that God, that they will just rest with their sword, that God, you will not only provide them enough strength daily, for it is your grace that is sufficient daily to keep them through that, but Lord, you will preserve them until the very end. So Lord, be with my brothers and sisters in this regard. And for any unbeliever who is here, help them to realize their need for you, Jesus, to repent of their sins, to believe in you and to live a life that glorifies you and all that Um, they will do. And so, Lord, again, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. We just lift up all these things. In Jesus' name we pray.